Hello and welcome to Unravelings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. And I'm Charlotte and I have a background in social work and psychology. This week we're talking about Ursula Le Guin's 1969 book, The Left Hand of Darkness. So we'll have spoilers throughout the podcast for that, and any other spoiler warnings that we need to drop in, along with any content warnings, we'll put right here. Hello, it's us from the future. Really, the spoiler warnings for this episode are just The Left Hand of Darkness, and also episode four of Unramblings. Uh, We do reference some of our conversation about Nightmare Before Christmas. Hopefully still makes sense if you haven't listened to that one already, but it was a good episode. You should go listen to it. As far as content warnings, there are passing mentions of rape, suicide, incest, and labor camps. None of these topics are described graphically or covered exhaustively, um, but they are mentioned. Okay, we'll send you back to the past. Welcome back! Okay, Shalom, would you like to give a quick summary of the book for us? So, in The Left Hand of Darkness... We're mostly in the perspective of Genli Ai, who was the envoy from the Ecumen, which is a league of all-known worlds, on a new planet called Gethin, or Winter. His mission is to be the first outright known alien person from outside the planet to kind of build diplomatic relationships with the countries on the planet and see if they'll join the Ecumen. During the course of his mission, he ends up going to a couple of different major countries on this world. He ends up being exiled from one and put in like a work camp, like a labor camp in another and has to escape and ends up taking a harrowing journey essentially through open tundra. And it's very difficult. And, you know, he makes a very strong friendship with one of the natives along the way who at first he isn't sure if he can trust, but who ends up coming through for him. At the end, he does succeed in his mission of getting them to join the League of Worlds, but it's not kind of in the way that he originally planned, and that's basically the story. Yep, seems fair. We should mention that this book is part of the Hainish Cycle, which um, is a decent array of books and short stories and novellas that she worked on. Um, We're only going to be talking about the one book in this situation, partially because it's plenty for a single podcast episode, and also because I've not read the entire Hainish Cycle. Right, and it's my understanding that those other books are not part of a larger interconnected plot. It's not like a linear series where one follows on from the next. They're more stories from the same universe. Think the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Right. Yes, it's uh, set in a universe where the planet Hain contains the oldest humans and... They were the original colonizing force. Yeah. This is the first science fiction book that we're doing on the podcast. We we do not concern ourselves so much with whether things are, quote, literary. And I could talk for a long time about that and have on multiple occasions, but we're not going to bore you with that. But I do want to talk a little bit about how suddenly I, and I think Charlene, sees science fiction... Partially because in Ursula Le Guin's introductions to the book, she does a really nice job of laying out pretty much how I feel about it. So I'm just going to read the brief part from the beginning of this so that I don't get bogged down in my own thoughts, which could go on for hours. Sorry, that was a very long introduction to this. Uh, So she says, Science fiction is often described and even defined as extrapolative. The science fiction writer is supposed to take a trend or phenomenon of the here and now, purify and intensify it for dramatic effect, 
and extend it into the future. If this goes on, this is what will happen. A prediction is made. Method and results much resemble those of a scientist who feeds large doses of a purified and concentrated food additive to mice in order to predict what may happen to people who eat it in small quantities for a long time. The outcome seems almost inevitably to be cancer. So does the outcome of extrapolation. Strictly extrapolative works of science fiction generally arrive about where the Club of Roma arrives, somewhere between the gradual extinction of human liberty and the total extinction of terrestrial life. This may explain why so many people who do not read science fiction describe it as escapist, but when questioned further, admit they do not read it because it's so depressing. Almost anything carried out to its logical extreme becomes depressing, if not carcinogenic. So it's that sort of, think science fiction in particular, I think a lot of literature does it, but science fiction perhaps more explicitly does a really good job of creating a world where it can use analogies and parallels to examine issues and problems in our own world and sort of discuss them without it feeling so preachy or just preachy. <laughs> Which I think is a lot of what we're going to talk about today. I think there's a lot of stuff in this where she's talking about it as a way to look at our own culture. So to prepare for this podcast, we both reread the book. Yeah. I had read it in 2007 for a creative writing class, and I actually ended up digging out a book review that I wrote about it, which was interesting to see like what I had thought you know, 12 years ago were the main themes and messages of the work, so that was kind of neat. Uh, I believe you had read it um, as well. Before. Yeah, I had a similar situation where I read it in like 2015 or 2016 in preparation to write a master's thesis and I found the notes on my phone that I took while I was doing it which told me two things. One, that when I was writing my master's thesis I was reading it looking at very specific things and two, I was really bad at taking notes. <laughs> you get a page number with a single word next to it and you're like, hope I knew what it meant when I read it last time. Yeah, so that's interesting that we both had that kind of experience where we had both read it for academic purposes in the past with a very different orientation of like how we were consuming it. Although to be fair, I think that you read it because it was assigned and then I read it because I said, I'm thinking of writing this thesis. And you were like, you should do this book. And I was like, cool, I've not read that particular one yet. And I should read that book. That's true. Yeah, I did recommend that. So that's, that's so. why we had it, both had it because you told me to. So. <laughs> I suppose. Okay, so we should get into it. Yeah. So we can't talk about this book without talking about gender, because while all of the people in the different worlds of the ecumen are humans, the Gathenian people have a unique sex situation in that they are not explicitly men or women five-sixths of the time. They're in a sort of neutral potential state five-sixths of the time, where they have like no sex drive and very little in the way of like defining secondary sexual characteristics and then go into a sort of estrus period that they call Kemmer during which they develop the secondary sex characteristics and become capable of having sex in either the inseminating or the potentially becoming pregnant role. And then they'll stay in the like womanly type if they get pregnant, but otherwise kind of revert back to this neutral state. And that's a very different biology than all of the other humans that the envoy, generally I, who is the person we mostly see through the eyes of, has ever encountered or been aware of in the universe. Yeah. So, I mean, that's obviously interesting to read for me as someone who identifies as gender fluid and uses they, them pronouns. Throughout the entire book, 
she uses he for the terms of the individuals, regardless of whether they're in Kemmer in one way or another. Or That's not true. At a point where he encounters, where Jenly I, who is a man, encounters a Gathenian in Kemmer who is entering like a female state, he switches pronouns to refer to that Gathenian as she when he's in the transport truck to go to the work camp. Interesting. Um, I noticed that that particularly stood out because in other situations, like when Estraman is starting to move into a feminine phase during Kemmer, he doesn't do that. Ah, that's interesting. I noticed there are a few points when he sort of like, it's almost as if they should be a she for him. Mm-hmm. Um, but Le Guin does use just he and she throughout the books then. Mm-hmm. Those very gendered pronouns. But mostly he, you're right. Rather than using they, them at all, which the book was written in 1969. Right. Um, which, funnily enough, actually means that this is the 50 year anniversary of the book, and January will be two years since she passed away, actually. I have some fairly strong th- uh, thoughts about authorial intent and when authors tell you what they mean and whether you should listen to that, and largely I think that the text should mean what it means. Mm-hmm. In this case, I'm going to waive that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1976, Le Guin revisited the book with an essay called Is Gender Necessary? where she sort of responded to a lot of the criticism, like literary criticism that was coming out about it and sort of talking about things like gender in it to just sort of respond and talk about what she thought the book was about. And then in 1987, so 10 years after she'd written that first essay, she went back and revised the essay with Is Gender Necessary Redux and added in extra comments in italics or footnotes to respond to her previous stuff, which I think is a really nice way of seeing how an author has progressed and how a work has progressed within society. I want to read a couple of excerpts from it and we might put a couple of clips from the text either in the show notes or on our social media just so people can see it more clearly. I don't want to make a habit of us reading passages of essays and such on the podcast. But I think that these are very well said and I think give a good insight into the book for the current age as well. These 32 years after she last visited this essay. Okay, so she talks about the original essay and says, as it was getting published, even then I was getting uncomfortable with some of the statements I made in it. And the discomfort soon became plain disagreement. But those were just the bits that people kept quoting with cries of joy. It doesn't seem right or wise to revise an old text severely, as if trying to obliterate it, hiding the evidence that one had to go there to get here. It is rather in the feminist mode to let one's changes of mind and the processes of change stand as evidence, and perhaps remind people that minds that don't change are like clams that don't open. So here I reprint the original essay entire, with a running commentary in bracketed italics. I request and entreat anyone who wishes to quote from this piece henceforth to use or at least include these reconsiderations, and I do very much hope that I don't have to print reconsiderations in 1997, (laughs) since I'm a bit tired of chastising myself. So this first part's from the original essay. But the central failure in this area comes up in the frequent criticism I received that Gathenians seem like men instead of men-women, which is a term for an androgynous person, I guess. NB was a few decades away. Mm -hmm. This arises in part from the choice of pronoun. I call Gathenians he because I utterly refuse to mangle English by inventing a pronoun for he slash she. So then she responds to that. This utter refusal of 1968, restated in 1976, collapsed utterly within a couple of years more. 
I still dislike invented pronouns, but I now dislike them less than the so-called generic pronoun he, him, his, which does in fact exclude women from discourse, and which was invention of male grammarians, for until the 16th century the English generic singular pronoun was they, them, their, as it still is in English and American colloquial speech. It should be restored to the written language, and let the pedants and pundits squeak and gibber in the streets. In a screenplay of The Left Hand of Darkness, written in 1985, I refer to Catanians not pregnant or in chemo by the invented pronouns a un as, muddled but on a British dialect. Hey. <laughs> These would drive the reader mad in print, I suppose, but I have read parts of the book aloud using them, and the audience was perfectly happy, except that they pointed out that the subject pronoun a, pronounced uh, oops, <laughs> sounds too much like I said with a southern accent. So then it goes back to our original comments. He is the generic pronoun, damn it, in English. I envy the Japanese, who, I am told, do have a he-she pronoun. But I do not consider this really very important. And she responds, I now consider it very important. Okay, I think that's what I wanted to say about that. Okay. I just wanted to say that while she retroactively did say that non-gender pronouns would have been better, we'll primarily be using gender pronouns throughout this conversation about the characters, just because that's what's actually used in the book. Um, I do think that it's interesting that she talks about her feelings about the pronouns specifically, because one of the things that you see throughout the book, especially over time, is that Genly I is biased against women, like he has some internalized misogynist views. He's aware enough of his own bias to acknowledge that he has a hard time seeing the Gathenians accurately as themselves and is rather like mentally putting them in like a male or female box all the time, even though he knows intellectually that that's completely irrelevant to who they are as people. And one of there was even a quote about the use of the male pronoun being a part of that in the book, and it was me find it sorry the very use of the pronoun in my thoughts leads me continually to forget that the car hider which is one of the countries uh, car hide was one of the countries that the car hider i am with is not a man but a man woman interesting that even in the original text that was in that she wrote in 1968 the narr the predominant narrator acknowledges that the pronouns inform the way he thinks about people like the pronouns he's using and then later she revises to sort of acknowledge that that is a problem like on a larger scale with humans. And, like that's why we need a gender neutral pronoun because the way you think and the words you use do affect your perceptions of the world. Yeah, it's really interesting from uh, within the world of the books situation because it's characterized that there are two languages spoken on this planet. There's Kahidish and the Ogarain. Ogarain. Um, Presumably others for the other countries you don't see. Right. But it seems that Genli I is not fluent, but pretty close in both languages. So if he's thinking with this he pronoun, it must be his own one that he's bringing from Terror and the Ecumen, mm -hmm. rather than... It, like presumably the Carhiders don't have gendered pronouns because they don't seem to have gendered terms even for someone in chemo as such. Right, and even like it's also um, said that there are people who aren't in the like physiological norm of these people, like three to four percent 
of people are stuck, quote unquote, in like a man or woman state. And they refer to this as perversion on this planet. So being like a woman the way that I am all the time, like every single day, constantly capable of pregnancy, etc., constantly possessing boobs and all of that would be labeled a pervert on this planet. And like these people aren't like shunned or anything, but they are kind of marginal in society and seen as like weird and you know the degree of inclusion kind of varies yeah. by uh community so they do have people like that but even those people there's no indication that there is like a an explicitly masculine or feminine pronoun used for them depending on what state they're quote-unquote stuck in right i uh, like um when generally eyes in the prison camp and they don't know who he is mm-hmm. um like they're like they they include him but they do give him the nickname of pervert. Yep, that um, they just refer to him as that all the time because yeah. like it's like oh, oh who who are you talking about? oh the per- the pervert. Which is interesting like, because there are people in our society today 50 years on that uh, would refer to people who are trans etc as being mm-hmm. weird perverted people because they're assholes or don't understand things. Um, yeah, I do think that the, it's interesting that's like 3 to 4% of people on Gethin are um, like perverts and are stuck in a male or female gender. And I think the estimates, there's about 2% of the population who's intersex, you know, on this planet. And there's also some estimate of like 2% of people who are in the LGBT community, like in general, something like that. It's like 2 to 4%. So it's like similar proportions yeah. that you're looking at there. It is interesting whenever I hear the like how many percentage of people are LGBT and stuff. I'm always curious as to where the number comes from because of how many people aren't open about it for various reasons. Right. Well, like the the numbers for intersex people, I think, is from birth. And so that's definitely, you know, an underestimate because not every intersex individual, it's not always apparent at birth. So, yeah, I'm glad that she comes to realize and like kind of go on the public record as acknowledging that pronouns are important. And it is it doesn't it doesn't matter that for a long time we were using a masculine pronoun as a default. Yeah, that's one of those things which is bad for everyone except for a group of men. So it's interesting with the um, sort of male default thing, and this is one of the criticisms that Le Guin sort of recognises in the essay, is that generally I expects everyone to be male to a degree. Like, he comments whenever there's some, like, as far as narration goes, he comments when there's someone who acts in a fem- what he deems a feminine way. Like, he talks about his landlady and stuff. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't ever go, oh, but this one's acting so manly or anything. Which I think is because she's portraying this male point of view and using it as a lens on some version, to my mind, of our society. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. Like, it's it's an excellent case of the narrator and the lens you're getting the perspective from not being the same as the author's. It's like... This is her going, this is what men sound like, <laughs> you know, like, I'm serious, like, she's presenting a lot of these subconscious sexist ideas that are definitely equating femininity with inferiority, basically, equating a f- uh, femininity with weakness, with frivolousness, you know, using feminine descriptions and like the word effeminate, like as a pejorative throughout the text, up until the point where Jen Lee Ai is able to 
actually see beyond gender to become truly friends with Estraven. And it's acknowledged at that point, at the end of the book, toward the end of the book, that he realizes that that's what he had been doing. His bias against femininity had been making him unwilling to be vulnerable and connect in a genuine way with anyone in Gethin, even Estraven, who had really been his closest ally the whole time. Well, I think he uses a. I think Le Guin uses a really nice phrase for it. Was he'd been denying Estraven his reality, mm-hmm. refusing Estraven his own reality. Mm-hmm. And in general, throughout the book, I think the biggest statement that. Ursula K. Le Guin is trying to make is just how pervasive gender is in defining so many aspects of our identities and of our society and all of our interactions. There's a, a bit of a monologue at one point that's not from the perspective of Jen Lee I, but I believe of the perspective of one of the people who came to Gethin to kind of scout before he did, like the the field notes. The from, investigators? Yeah, one of the field notes from the investigators, and it was, I suppose... The most important thing, the heaviest single factor in one's life, is whether one is born male or female. In most societies, it determines one's expectations, activities, outlook, ethics, manners, almost everything. Vocabulary, semiotic usages, clothing, even food. Actually, no, that isn't one of the investigators. That's generally I, when when Estraven's asking him what women are like when he's in Kemmer and heading, uh, toward, headed toward womanhood. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite far towards the end of the book. The report on gender and war that comes from that first investigator, really like that thing that we're talking about where generally I is not Ursula K. Le Guin. Right. Because I think that she's using him to say that we have these things going on in our society and like the roles that we put through gender and mm-hmm. everything are sort of an assumption that's potentially absurd. Or um, not necessarily inherent, but assumed. Yeah, and there's that. There's a note from later on that where she, um, Jenny I is talking. I think it's from that bit that you were just quoting, uh, where Jenny I is saying that it's hard to tell what is innate and what is learned. Yeah, that's actually I. I have that here too. A little bit later in that same point, it's, he does say it's extremely hard to separate the innate differences from the learned ones. You know, and goes yeah. on to talk about like differences in child rearing and. This is one of the, not, you get to one of the points where you really see Jen Lee I's internalized sexism because Estraven asks if they're, if women are mentally inferior because Jen Lee I has just described societies as where women are not participating equally in society a lot of the time. And he says, I don't know. They don't often seem to turn up mathematicians or composers of music or inventors or abstract thinkers, but it isn't that they're stupid. He eventually just sort of concludes that he doesn't know what women are like and like he's never really thought about it and i think that's really where you see his bias it's just like i haven't even really considered this entire half of my own like race like what every what half of the people i encounter are like that's the stuff i was talking about with science fiction earlier where she's using the planet of gethin as a like clean slate to look at this from to say what is innate Mm -hmm. um she says in one of the essays, like, she was, you know, stripping away gender to see what was left. I don't think she does strip away gender entirely just because of the assumptions that get stuck in the brain. Mm-hmm. But she makes a good effort at it. Whereas if you're looking, if you were to write any story set on Earth, you would have to start off with, okay, so what does someone already know socially? Mm-hmm. I think that you see quite clearly how she's showing that generally I isn't able to get rid of those socially learned ideas of gender. Mm-hmm. By 
the fact that he has read this report on gender and war, which is included. Right. Which is from the point of view of a female investigator that has one of the first investigators that's come down before he comes to be an envoy, where they're not actually showing themselves, but just sort of watching to find out what the culture's like. And her takeaway from being on the planet is that it's hard not to have your understandings of a culture filtered by your own culture, but she does note the error of trying to prescribe gender roles onto Gathenians. And it's like, that doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense to try and do that. And generally, I reads this report, mm-hmm. includes it in his final report, and then comes down to the planet and is like, well, this guy seems kind of like a dude. And that woman's kind of, well, she's got a big buttock, so she must be a woman. Yeah. Is that the same report where it says Gethin and its daily functioning and its continuity is without sex? Consider anyone can turn his, turn his hand to anything. The fact that everyone between 17 and 35 or so is liable to be tied down to childbearing implies that no one is quite so thoroughly tied down here as women elsewhere are likely to be psychologically or physically. Burden and privilege are shared out pretty equally. Everybody has the same risk to run or choice to make. Therefore, nobody here is quite so free as a free male anywhere else. I think it might be. I think it's from that one. And I think that's part... That one is where I kind of hear Ursula K. Le Guin just, like, talking straight out of the book. Yeah. Of, like, the way that we have tied a lot of other things to biological sex and, like, capacity for childbearing in particular has yoked a lot of people into a subservient position in society. And a point where they're perceived as inferior or perceived as having inborn roles in society, regardless of their own inclination or ability. Yeah. The other thing that does come up in that, just while we're talking about that report... Mm-hmm. The war part? Not war. It's... Sorry, I thought I had a copy of the same. She also, like, in her revision of her essay, has gone through and, like, removed some gendered terms. Mm. Like... In, is that the that of the Kemmer house, which is open to anyone in Kemmer, native or stranger, so that he can find a sexual partner. And then her edit is just read, so that they can find sexual partners. Mm-hmm. Here we go. So that report from the first inspector talks mm-hmm. about sexuality in Gethenians mm-hmm. and notes that like she doesn't see any sort of homosexual pairing, mm-hmm. which is tied to this somewhat problematic, at least from Jen Lee's phrasing, of how the two people in Kemo works, mm-hmm. where they sort of one person in Kemo is just like by themselves is sort of in torture and with two, like one sort of gets these dominant male hormones and one gets the submissive female hormone situation and they take forms to make a heterosexual pairing with this weird dominant stuff going on. So that seemed kind of bothersome to me when reading the book, especially because in Orgrain there's the ability to use hormones to select which gender you want to be. So the absence of homosexuality in the book seems a little bit strange, which Le Guin thought too. She said in the revisions to her essay, I quite unnecessarily locked the Gathenians into heterosexuality. It is a naively pragmatic view of sex that insists that sexual partners must be of the opposite sex. In any Kemmer house, homosexual practice would, of course, be possible and acceptable and welcomed, but I never thought to explore this option, and the omission, alas, implies that sexuality is heterosexuality. I regret this very much. Yeah, I do think that's interesting, and, like, I could kind of see in a pair of, like, just two people how if if the idea and if the 
like if the genetic engineering that created the like ambisexual people on Geffen was to maximize fertility during a certain window, like on this really harsh planet, which seems to have been what the idea was because it's like an estrus cycle. Like the person who takes the receptive role is very fertile at Kemmer and very likely to get pregnant. So from that perspective, it does make sense. But then you do know, and it is it is definitely explicitly confirmed in the book that in the camera houses, it's basically a huge orgy. So there would be, you know, there would be sexual interaction of lots of people. It wouldn't actually matter which kind of side got flipped in your biology. You could still interact with somebody who had gone whatever way. Yeah. Um, and also just based off of like the talk of people carrying it or siring children mm-hmm. and the ability to pick a preference during mm-hmm. camera in Orgarin. Yeah, in Orgarin. I'm, yeah. I'm going to sound uncertain every time I say that city's name. Yeah. Like there's the, uh, I think it's a car hider that generally I comes across and is, and like refers to as his landlady mm-hmm. and asks how many kids she's had because he's like, well, this is clearly a woman. And the character looks sad mm-hmm. and is like, well, none, but I've sired four. Mm-hmm. But clearly like wishes that they had carried some. Mm-hmm. So like that demonstrates that they're, is a preference to be had. So I can only assume that there must be people who have a preference one way and maybe has a preference over what they're working with. So, like, sexuality being more diverse seems logical. Yeah, it is definitely... Like, there wouldn't be drugs to choose one unless people wanted to do that. So that there clearly are people who would rather go one way than the other consistently, or at least sometimes. Or there'd be no market for that, basically. And, like, the king of Carhide sires lots of kids, but then finally gets pregnant himself, himself, in in the book. And he's pretty old at that point, and people think it's hilarious, not because he's the king and, like, in this masculine role, but because he's so old. And, unfortunately, his child dies shortly after being born, and the king's very upset about it. You know, and that's a situation where he probably wanted to have a child of his flesh, which is what they call it when it's you're, you're the one carrying, um, much earlier for as a successor, you know, but because of Genly I's perspective, like he's, he defaults to seeing the childbearing role as being the less desirable one. Yeah. So to loop back around to talking about looking at gender as a way of, and like how understanding a culture works with that. Mm-hmm. I think you see some, like, interesting points on Zhen Liai's travels that sort of take him from not understanding to actually understanding and breaking through a fairly big social wall. You're talking about how he ultimately becomes real friends with somebody in the culture? Yes. Yeah. Real friends. Well, I have some, I have something important to say about that at the end, but I want to see how you get there first. Okay. So you can tell me I'm wrong now. No, 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 no. Just because I want to make a, a point about it. So early on, you get sort of this very, I think that there's a direct quote, I don't have it pulled up because I'm stupid, but there's a comment about not being able to see another people through their own eyes. Right. I think it might actually be during that first, like, the keystone ceremony. It is. It's at the very beginning, because it's one of my very first quotes. It's, We're going to pause and you're going to have the quote. <laughs> no, it's, I was still far from being able to see the people of the planet through their own eyes. I tried to, but my efforts took the form of self-consciously seeing a Gathenian first as a man, then as a woman, forcing him into those categories so irrelevant to his nature and so essential to my own. Okay. And that I read it earlier. Okay. Perfect. 
Thank you. Yeah, so I, I think that that's a really good starting point and also like is very close to what we were talking about last week with Nightmare Before Christmas where yeah. Jack's like can't understand things from someone else's Well, and also so. the, the townspeople of Halloween Town, like they're seeing like Christmas things but through their own eyes. Yeah, and I think that it's... That there's a nice comment from Estravan when in one of his later... In, in one of his point of view chapters when he's doing the jailbreak. And right. it's, it's a quote that's not meant for this, but that I think sort of might be in there in, to sort of show that point of view, where Estevan's turned up and, like, worked with this guard all night that hasn't really been paying attention and is just sort of down and miserable, um, and then later on is in disguise, but with his face uncovered, and the guy doesn't recognise him, and he um, narrates it as saying that the man had never seen my face, though he had had it before him half the night. Which, yeah. A, is nicely said, but also it's like really that same sort of thing of eyes like there. He knows what he's looking at, but he doesn't see, see it. it. Yeah. You at, at about the halfway point, you start to see I break down and become part of this culture to an extent where these meets Gaum. Yeah. Gaum. I don't know how the name is said. It's, it's an anagram of Guam, and I just want to say Guam every time. Uh. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. He's like the head of the secret police in Rain, or like he's high up in the secret police. He, he's a soft agent. Yeah, he's a shady guy, but very pretty. But very pretty, and I recognize that. Like, at the, at the table, like, that's the reference. And the reference is that he is handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't ever get any information on I's sexuality throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general assumption... I don't know. Is that fair? We don't get any information on I's sexuality throughout the book. But he thinks that Guam is handsome... Whether he's a man or a woman, whatever he is, I know hot when I see it. That, yeah. That guy is hot. That's that's I's take on this. Yeah. Um, and then you get Guam trying to say Gaum. I don't know. There's no pronunciation it's, guide in it's the It's a weird name. It's G-A-U-M. Yeah. So I, um, I think of it as Gaum. Gaum? Okay, we'll just both say Gaum and people can write in with their corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, or Gaum. But Gaum sounds silly. Gaum. Gaum makes much more sense. Gaum. Yeah. Anyway. And Gaum then, like, tries to seduce um, Estervan later. Which is it's interesting, because if this is just a tangent, because this episode is just tangents everywhere. Gaum takes a feminine form mm-hmm. for Estervan, but then later when Estervan is, like, in camera around generally I, seems to, then Estervan seems to be taking the feminine form around I. Well, it seems like he pushed himself, like Gaum, pushed himself to feminine on purpose. And, like, Estrovin thinks um, that Gaum was very beautiful in Kemmer and, like, knew it. And so it seems to have been a calculated choice mm. that, like, he he took hormones to be the most attractive version of himself in Kemmer, which I guess is feminine. And then, you know, kind of ambushes Estrovin when he's at like the early sensitive part where his camera could be pushed either way. So it's like, I'm going to come to you as this beautiful, alluring woman at this point when your body is looking for an attractive partner and, you know, to try and lure you into listening to me. And it's real shady and gross. Yeah. And Estrovin is like, nope, I'm going to be abstinent while I'm exiled and you can just go to the camera house next door if you're so hard up for company, which is just the most beautiful burn. Like, it's a great burn in the book. Which is, to make a tangent from this tangent, Mm -hmm. in just the most tangential way, is one of the interesting things is that there's all this view of the culture, 
And also Le Guin says, like, oh, within this culture, there can be no rape. Like, sex has to be consensual because of the way that Kemmer works. But does acknowledge that seduction is possible. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a society at this point, we've grown to the point where if you're using drugs on someone and, like, not being honest and, like... Trying to manipulate them. Manipulating them into it, then that's... Still rape. It's still definitely a form of sexual assault. If you get someone in, if you trap someone into a circumstance where at some point they're going to succumb to this overwhelming hormonal force that really overwhelmingly pushes them to copulate and they didn't want to be in that situation, it doesn't matter if they're eventually hormonally pushed to the point where they engage, it, you still... Yeah, you still raped them, like you still assaulted them. And Garam yeah. is doing it for political motivation reasons. Yeah, um, it's and this like honeypot thing that like, he's doing. He's effectively using the natural drugs of Esteban's body. Like if right. if Garam turned up and like poured a load of drugs into Esteban's drink, it wouldn't be a question of what that was. But so mm-hmm. I disagree with the notion that there isn't rape in this culture. I think it's just different. Yeah, um, because people are just terrible anywhere in the universe. <laughs> human beings are still human beings and still capable of being awful. Okay, but to loop back around to Jenny's voyage of gender understanding, mm-hmm. um, so it has that sort of situation where, like, there's the whole not really seeing them who they are. Yeah, so by about two thirds of the way through the book, there's still a lot of perception based on gender. They're, like, trying to escape up across the ice, and Esteban is sort of trying to take care of him because he's sick and he's like seeing Estevan as being womanly because of this. Because he's nagging and motherly. Yeah. How dare he? Yeah. But then, so he's, um, when he sort of is trying to come back down from being annoyed with Estevan, he's sort of understanding that it hadn't been intended and that it was really that it, the issue was that generally I has this manliness pride thing going on. Yeah. That Estevan doesn't really understand. Yeah. And there's, a thing of honour throughout the people of Carhide called Sh- Shifgrithor. Thank you. Just one second. Is it this quote? Uh, yes. <laughs> Did you want to read the quote? No, 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 it's fine. I just, in the future, if you have a quote you're looking for, see if I have it already. <laughs> well, I have the page numbers. Okay. So it's talking about uh, this, where there's sort of a lot of games. If you've read the Game of Thrones books, then mm. it's kind of similar to the whole, the way the game is played in that, and if you've read Wheel of Time, the Wheel of Time then the Game of Houses the Game of Houses is the same sort of thing where it's the, oh, you can't give advice because of it. All this ma- maneuvering and political machinations, but it's beyond that because it's just like interpersonal, even among regular people. Yeah. There's like these uh, like, generally I compares it to concepts in art cultures like Concepts of face and things like that. Yeah. You know, of, of just all of these intricate codes of honor. Yeah. So he's talking about his manly pride. And then he says, on the other hand, if he could lower all his standards of Shifgrathor, as I realized he had done with me, perhaps I could dispense with the more competitive elements of my masculine self-respect, which he certainly understood as little as I understood Shifgrathor. Yeah, so there you see that he is acknowledging, no, Estrovin is not a man. He's not tied up in all these ideas of masculinity that I cannot see the world without. Right, but he's also recognizing that he his own concepts of his gender mm-hmm. can, to some extent, be set aside in the same way as honor. Right. And that that doesn't, like, 
his own image of what his gender means Mm -hmm. starts to be less important to him in the same way that he starts to be like oh well Garam is attractive he starts to be well like understanding other people's identities his own identity starts to change Mm -hmm. I do think that's really interesting as far as recognizing that Estravan has put a, put aside his own Shifgrithor to really just try and connect with Genli Ai, like as a human being. And what's really going on there, as it comes out later, is that Estravan has decided that his pride and also his loyalty to a particular country and all of that is not as important as the fate of the entire planet and all of its people. That you know, he needs to connect with the envoy as a human being for the greater purpose of human beings. And so you see then, like, Genli Ai kind of realizing, oh yeah, like, my gender and my idea of masculine self-respect is not as important as the genuine connection between human beings. Yeah, yes. So from there, like, he gets to a point where he finally does accept Estevan's duality as being both man and woman, mm-hmm. which is a little bit interesting how it's done. Um, Le Guin says at one point in one of her essays that like she realizes that part of the problem with the characters being seen as men rather than men women mm-hmm. um, is that Estevan is the most visual Gethenian that you meet, mm-hmm. um, and all of the roles that he's given in the book are those that at least Le Guin in '69 kind of sees as male roles um it's like prisoner and prison breaker and all this stuff mm-hmm. mm. rescuer so she wrote him she wrote him doing those things as more of a man from her point of view mm-hmm. um and then when i understands that there really is that duality is when estevan's trying not to have sex with him <laughs> it's like in i's mind there's there's prime ministers and people that want to sleep with me that's <laughs> I is perhaps not the best person. Anyway, but it sort of leads to this understanding of... There's a lot of dualities in the book, mm-hmm. and the left hand of darkness itself is... It comes out towards the end. It's the, the left... Darkness is the left hand, and light is the right hand, and it's this yin-yang togetherness. It's light is the left hand of darkness. Darkness is the right hand of light. Right, yes. Let's just pretend that's So, that. the left hand of darkness is light. Right, yes. That makes more sense. <laughs> But he begins to see, like, those dualities becoming one thing with Estravad and Gethenians being a symbol of that, where they're this whole everything as one containing both the female and the male. She sees as a duality and non-binary people, and it's a whole thing. Anyway, um, but he does see that as being a whole rather than trying to just mesh, like, the two things as separate, where you can be one or be the other. They are both. Mm-hmm. Um, so... A Gethenian can go into camera and be one or the other, mm-hmm. but they're always both, if that makes sense. So even while at the very end of the book, when he meets Estevan's offspring, mm-hmm. um, he thinks of the teenager in these binaries. Mm-hmm. In between those points, we have this point when generally I sees his own people again. They come down to, mm-hmm. as their sort of welcoming committee to like bring winter into the ecumen and everything and sees them as being alien to himself at this point, and, mm-hmm. like, it's weird for him to talk to a woman again. Mm-hmm. And that they don't recognise him either, partially because he's gone, but also just, like, he sort of lost his own identity to an extent in his understanding of another, and has sort of become this singular being. 
I, I kind of interpreted them not being able to recognize him as being because he's emaciated and scarred by having been in a work camp and then taken like a two month journey across frozen tundra with not quite enough supplies. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> uh, maybe. But I think that, like, the fact that he doesn't, like, they now seem alien to him as well. Yeah. Yeah, I do see your point. That's very clear. He's like, ah, it's so weird to see explicitly gendered people. And then, like, <laughs> he gets back to his quarters and the physician comes to check on him and he's like, ah, yes, now this physician person that has no gender, this is much more comfortable, this I understand. Mm-hmm. So it's that sort of transformative process of learning about the culture. Yeah. I do think that journey he kind of goes through toward being able to see the Gathenians as just people and not like through the lens of gender. I think one of the most clear moments of that where like he's aware that that's what's happening like in his own perspective is toward the end of the journey in the through the ice with Estrabin where he thinks to himself and I saw then again and for good what I had always been afraid to see and had pretended not to see in him him being Estrabin that he was a woman as well as a man, any need to explain the sources of that fear vanished with the fear. What I was left with was at last acceptance of him as he was. And then, like, for there's more, but eventually, like, he's saying, you know, Estrovan had given him entire personal loyalty and had expected that back from Genly I. Um, and so it goes on to say, quote, I had not been willing to give it. I have been afraid to give it. I had not wanted to give my trust, my friendship, to a man who was a woman, a woman who was a man. And I think that really kind of gets to him finally seeing his fear of the Gathenians because of their potential to be women as well as men, and that being kind of rooted in his own misogynistic bias that I don't think he was really super aware of up until this point. Yeah. Like, it, it was a barrier from him connecting, really, with anyone on that planet. I think that's also shown, um, there's really, I think, only one point when you see the same events from two points of view, mm-hmm. and it's when Genli I is trying not to cry in front of Estrava. Yeah. And you get Estrava's point of view originally where it's like, oh yeah, no, I, I guess Genli I is, like, their culture is ashamed of crying and things, and, like, tries to turn away and stuff. I don't get it. <laughs> and then Genli I, I think, reads that later and is responding to it, mm-hmm. um, and is like, it's not shame, it's fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that same, like, l- learning about his own self mm-hmm. from learning about them. Yeah. Um, also, toxic masculinity! Yay! We didn't go through a whole episode without talking about it. So. Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's one of the things that where Ursula K. Le Guin, again, is probably intentionally trying to point out this link between how the way that different things have been become tied to gender that don't really need to be are hurtful to people who are assigned in one box or another in a way that does make it difficult for men to express their emotions and feel open doing that and be able to be vulnerable with people as well as the way that child the the onus of childbearing has led to women being marginalized in a lot of ways in many societies um, and this whole passage really made me think of that whole, like, friend zone thing and, like, the issue that I know a lot of girls and women throughout their lives experience where there's this awful thing where you have to wonder if any guy who tries to be friends with you or befriends you is really just trying to get you to be a sexual partner or a romantic partner and having 
like people who are supposedly your friends abandon the friendship when they realize that it's not a route to that kind of connection. And, you know, really just that fundamental issue of a lot of people just not being able to see women, a lot of men in particular, not being able to see women as people first and as women second or as women additionally. That's just very sad. Yeah. There's a, there are also things that point out, like, that go around on social media about how, like, a lot of the time, like, men will assume that a woman is interested in having a romantic connection or a sexual connection with them if they do the emotional labor of validating their emotions and being receptive to supporting them emotionally in the way that women often do with their female friends because they've been socialized to think that the only person that they can open up to like that is their, like, wife or girlfriend or whatever. And so mm. it's like, so if you try to be emotionally supportive to a lot of men, they assume it means that you want a different kind of relationship than you necessarily do. And yeah. so that's, you know, it causes a lot of problems the way that we've entangled a lot of these ideas that don't really need to inherently be detangled or entangled, don't inherently need to be entangled. Yeah. I don't really have anything to add on that. I think you covered that very well. Yeah. I think I am running out of things to say about gender. Yeah, I was thinking. I, I I think we've we've talked about most of the topics. One thing I do want to say is I was thinking the other day about like structural extrapolations of these kind of strict gender divides, particularly in the area of like parental leave and things like that, and like the way that you know businesses are structured and the problems that women have finding employment and staying employed because people are worried that they're gonna get pregnant and need maternity leave and you know all of that like this society clearly has to be structured in such a way that anyone might have to go on maternity leave you know for six months a year it could be absolutely anyone in the company like any month you know and so like you're never gonna know you can't discriminate against one group of people to avoid having to deal with that. And so you have to build your policies and your organizational structure in a way that had the right kind of redundancy so that that wouldn't interrupt things that much and build in your social policies and your supports, your institutional supports. So to accommodate the fact that anyone could get pregnant at any time. And I feel like that's something that we need to be doing anyway here. Like, if that was the case, if anyone could get pregnant at any point, I mean, there's no one to discriminate against to prevent that interrupting your business. Yeah. Or we could just accept that, you know, everyone should be having a hand in the rearing of their child, whether they gave birth to them or not. Yeah. And maybe everyone should be getting leave as a parent. But... Definitely. I mean, <laughs> that's that's entirely a perspective that I have. And it is even mentioned in the book at one point that, like, the maternal and the, the, the difference between the maternal and paternal instinct. I actually have the quote here. I had that written. The distinction between a maternal and paternal instinct scarce, is scarcely worth making. The parental instinct, the wish to protect, to further, is not a sex-linked characteristic. And, and I do think that we would do well as a society, and I think we are moving a little more in that direction, to build that concept into our policies in general. You know, so that, like, if you have an addition to your family, whether you're the one who has given birth to that addition or not, or if they're adopted. Or, well, that's what I'm saying. Whether you gave birth or not, yeah. if you have a new addition to your family, you know, your the structure of your employment and the structure of our society should be such that anybody in that household, any of the adults taking care of that new child, should be able to do that. Yeah. 
I think I just have one last note on gender, which is uh, even with all the like understanding of genderlessness, etc. When the starship comes down, that thing is still a she. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Mm. Ships are always she. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Well, the the point, the time in that that where I've seen that in fiction not be the case is in the Wheel of Time, where the sea folk refer to their ships as he. Yeah. Um, but that's a totally different thing. But it's so weird also because so few things in the book are referred to as she, and then there's this starship, it's like, oh yeah, that's a she, clearly. You mean refer to as he? No, so few things in... Oh, so few things. Okay. Yeah, are referred to as she. she. That when, like, the starship comes down, it's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm struggling with all these gender ideas, but you know that large hulking bulk of metal? That's a she. Yeah. Um, I do remember noticing that as well. It doesn't... Like, the, the whole structure does really make you notice pronouns a lot. Yeah. So do you think we've said everything we wanted to say about gender so far? I think so, yeah. Okay. The next major idea that you want to move to. I think the next big one is um, sort of... I'm not sure really what to name it, but we'll call it sort of nationhood and patriotism. Okay. Yeah, there are definitely a few points in the book where explicit conversations are had on like the difference between loving your country and being afraid of other countries. And just like Mm -hmm. this question of where does it go wrong? Like, where does loving where you come from and the people you grew up around mutate into something hateful? Well, it's the the conversation that we're having a decent amount, I mean, both in the UK and the US right now, is nationalism versus patriotism. Yeah, that's what I think it boils down to, too. To to define those terms, um, because some people might think they mean the same thing, like, patriotism is, I love my country, and nationalism is, my country is better than the others. Well, I thought that's exceptionalism. Yeah, but it, that's sort of what it comes down to. Is the nationalism is the, like, my country is better and should be separate and those here are better than those there. Yeah. And the exceptionalism is tied to it fairly well. But Yeah, I know, I just thought about that as exceptionalism, but I guess it's all kind of the same thing. How would you define nationalism? I'm not sure that I would define it differently. I could look it up too. Identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nation, other nations. Yeah, so I think it, I think there's like a continuum. There's like patriotism, where you're like, I love my country, it's great, and then you have nationalism, which is I'm an American, and you know American interests are more important than the interests of anyone else. And no matter who, it hurts. And then there's exceptionalism, which is, like, Americans are absolutely the best, and all other countries suck and are terrible. Well, I think I challenge your definition of patriotism as, like, my country is great. I think you can be a patriot and go, my, my nation is truly broken, but I love it and I want to fix it. Uh, the quality, okay, devotion to and vigorous support for one's country. So it's just, like, I support my country, I love it. Yes. It's patriotism. But you see what I mean about the continuum? There's the... I love this place, I identify with it, and there is, I identify with this place and I think, and I have a somewhat supremacist view of, like, it should be, its interest should be prioritized over those of others, and then the exceptionalism is, like, you're absolutely superior and the best and all other nations suck. And there's usually often a lot of needs of xenophobia wrapped up in both the nationalism and exceptionalism. Yeah. I'm not really sure what to discuss about it. Like, I think there were several like really fascinating things with the nationhood stuff. 
and sort of what being a nation means. Mm. So they talk about the fact that, like, Carhide is a disparate group of domains. Right. Um, rather than a nation as such. Mm-hmm. And we, they sort of say, because it's not a nation, they don't have wars. They have forays. Mm-hmm. They have skirmishes. But they're not coming together and having a full war with their neighbouring nation-state. Mm-hmm. Which seems to be something which it's working to change as it, like, Tyva seems to be sort of trying to unify the domains into an aggressive stance against right. Ogre and so that they can get Sinoth Valley. Tyva being the prime minister advisor to the king type guy who sort of ousts an Estraven and engineers him getting exiled and then is, like, push, putting out all this nationalist propaganda yeah. where, you know, talking about how Carhide's interests needed to be superior and, like, they are way better than Overeign, etc. Yeah. But you get this interesting view where you have Carhide is this group of domains that has a king mm-hmm. and it's this sort of very feudal government structure. And they're sort of at a point where they can have these small battles but are building up to the point where they might be a nation with a war. And then you have Ogren, which has sort of left that part behind. It's mm-hmm. now a bureaucracy. They have stun guns and they refer to foray guns that fire bits of metal at people as being sort of this primitive thing that why would anyone use this anymore? Mm-hmm. Except that they start to use them against car hires as, a, as the sort of tensions build up there. And then when you have the envoy coming in, part of the issue that particularly the king has is that the king has this power over this series of domains that he sees generally I wanting to take away because the power, as he sees it, will go to the ecumen. But not only that, it will get rid of those boundaries on the planet because it won't be Carhide and Orgarin and all these places anymore. It will be the planet mm-hmm. communicating with the ecumen and trading as a unity. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of that, what does bringing things together mean? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I know the part you're talking about. Like, it's part of the, actually, a quote I have for, the, like, the inner society relations. Like, how shall we deal with strangers except as brothers? How shall Gethin treat with a union of 80 worlds except as a world? And, like, because of that, like, yeah. the king feels threatened by an intergalactic hegemony, which is not unreasonable. If you hear there's a confederation of 80 planets that wants to know if you'll join and you're like one of several large countries on a planet and it's like yeah i at that point how are you not going to see yourself as the person with the worst bargaining position and i think part of that comes from a fundamental lack of understanding of what the acumen is like they're seeing it as sort of like a super country and it's not it's more like a mercantile council or something you know or like a like an advisory board or a diplomatic board. I mean, it's supposed to be like the UN, but it's not. Are we also going to be just talking about the inner society stuff in this, or is that going to be a separate section? Yeah. Before you get into the UN stuff, I do want to say, like, I mean, it's kind of like if, if aliens turned up and said to the US, like, hey, your planet, it should be part of our thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like someone in the US would put their head and go, does that mean you want us to talk to Russia? Yeah. But at the same time, when you look at grouping together to trade with the outside world mm-hmm. and having a stronger position because you've grouped together, the United States is a pretty good argument for it. Yeah, I mean, you said that, and it's like that's exactly what the U.S. did. And what the king is afraid of is pretty much what's going to happen. Like, the ecumen are like, do approach the specific country of Carhide, like, gently eyes, like, 
I want you as the king of Karhaib to join, you know, sign a treaty with the Ecumen to join this this group of planets or this group of humans, you know, this big conglomeration of humans on different planets as a country. And then Ogarain signs too as its own country. But Estraven and like several, a few different people do kind of acknowledge that most likely over time, those countries having joined the Ecumen is probably going to ultimately result in the unification of the world, of the world as a whole into a singular governing body. Because Genlii says that's what usually happens. Like mm-hmm. they, they come to a new planet, they get at least one government to sign on, the other governments sign on because they don't want to get left out, which is what happens on Gethin. And eventually because they have to treat with other planets, they have to kind of join forces and become unified. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, if you went over to the UK and you said, hey, who's the president of the United States? Mm-hmm. They'd be able to tell you. If yeah. you said, who's the governor of Iowa? Mm-hmm. They might know what Iowa is. Yeah. But also, you can't ask you who's the president of the world. Right. Like, we don't have one. So how would you, if if an alien body did come and was like, hey, we can offer you free exchange of information you can have your technology advanced by leaps and bounds and with a pretty huge lag time, also like physical goods trade with other planets, you'd need somebody to run point on that, like to be the person or community that liaises with the larger interstellar body. And that the level of cooperation necessary to do that is just going to bring communities and countries together over hundreds of years, if not decades. Yeah. I think that part of what, it's not so much about patriotism, but I do think part of what this book is really trying to comment on, at least, in its representation of, like, the ecumen and some of the discussions about it and the way that it kind of approaches bringing these new worlds in is, in some ways, a critique of the League of Nations and the UN. Because at one point, I think Genli I explicitly says you know, if the ecumen failed in its diplomatic mission to, like, coordinate the planets that are occupied by humans, then it would have to become a peacekeeping force, which I felt was a pretty clear and scathing commentary on the UN. I was like, if you're if you're trying to bring communities together and get people to agree to common standards and you're a peacekeeping force, you already failed. Do, do you see it that way? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I also... <laughs> I, I, I hadn't really thought about the UN as such when I was reading it. I guess the Aikman do have a decent presence in the book, but, like, they're not always at the forefront. I hadn't thought, them, thought of them in such a way, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think they're interesting not only as a commentary, a pretty, like, unkind <laughs> commentary on the UN, but also as an example of a different way to do it, like a different way to work together as different countries or different larger governments, which is sort of as friends and as just kind of like people who talk. And like one of the things, one of the quotes I pointed out was, it doesn't take a thousand men to open a door. And like as a mm. comment on the reason that the Ecumen sends a single envoy to make the case for joining the Ecumen. It's like, this isn't supposed to be a threat. This isn't supposed to be a show of force. It's in exactly the opposite. We want to engender trust. We want you to give us a chance and recognize that we are not trying to strong arm you into anything or, you know, intimidate you in any way. And 
that's, I think, a particularly interesting, like, it's a very diplomatic perspective. It's like, it's the hand outstretched, it's not a fist. Yeah. And I think part of that goes down, because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff with how the people of Winter see generally I, mm-hmm. and how they talk about the Ekman, which I think is then paralleled a little bit within the nation-state type areas of the planet itself. Mm-hmm. Um, in that a lot of the sort of development of nationhood that we see within the book is about othering. It's mm-hmm. a lot of defining ourselves by not you. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of talk of like when you're in Ogarin of like they're talking about car hiders as being oh they're this that and the other and it's all they're primitive and mm-hmm. oh you know they I hear they do this sort of thing and you get sort of a similar thing from um, Tiber. Is that how we're pronouncing in his pro- in his propaganda? Yeah, I mean, propaganda plays a pretty big role throughout the book, um, on both sides. On both sides, yeah. In terms of trying to create a sense of national identity through othering. Yeah, like, you have Tiber there providing all this sort of propaganda and this idea of things, um, and, like, generally I's looking at him and the king, and it's like, oh, Argoven is, is insane, mm-hmm. but he's also being fed on fear. Argoven being the king. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like... Argovan's not doing much damage, but Tiber's... Oh, he says, like, Tiber's madness has its own logic to it. Mm-hmm. So it's that sort of, he's... What he's saying is bullshit. Mm-hmm. But he's got these sort of, like, he's doing speeches on othering and talking about the disloyal factions within it. It's one of those things where you read something that was written 50 years ago and you're like, oh yeah, you're talking about what's going on. Oh no, you wrote this 50 years ago. I'm not saying that I'm looking at any of our leaders and questioning their sanity. Um, but you're not not saying that. But it's just kind of sad when you see these things years on, and you're like, oh well. Yeah. Um, it's like, how are we falling for these same kinds of things again? There's a point in one of Tiber's speeches where he's, you know, concerned about the integrity of the kingdom's borders. Yeah. And I mean that that's when I talked about with gender. There's the duality, and it's sort of becoming together as a whole. It's another instance of that. Of you get this perspective where you're showing these two things as separate, mm-hmm. and Le Guin saying this should be a single whole as one. Do you think that's going too far? I'm not quite sure what you're trying to say. Well, like, when she's talking with the dualities and stuff, and she's talking about the left hand and the right hand, and light and dark, and female and male, Carhide and Orgarin are set up as a similar sort of, ju- you know, this and that, mm-hmm. as being these separate things with a border between them, but there's not really any difference. Sure, yeah. I do think that she's trying to make the case of, like, ultimately, it's just all going to be the same planet. It is all the same planet. The borders are arbitrary. The governments are arbitrary. And when you join this larger community of worlds, you're eventually going to see that and see that those distinctions are really just creating barriers and problems that aren't necessary or helpful. Which I think is the same thing that she's saying about gender as well. Yes, definitely. No, I do agree. It's these false distinctions and such. Mm -hmm. Like when you consider the common humanity that is there in both, the other stuff kind of should fall away. Like they're not nearly as important and only serve to obscure that common humanity. That is the important thing. Yeah. Uh, There's a nice quote from I towards the end. Well, two-thirds of the way through the book. No, it's, um, Esteban is asked by generally I whether he hates Orgarin. Yeah, I think I have that quote. And his first response is, very few Orgota know how to cook. Hate Orgarin? No, how should I? How does one hate a country or love one? Tiber talks about it. I lack the trick of it. I know people, I know towns, farms, hills, and rivers, and rocks. 
I know how the sun at sunset in autumn falls on the side of a certain plowland in the hills, but what is the sense of giving a boundary to all that, of giving it a name and ceasing to love where the name ceases to apply? What is love of one's country? Is it hate of one's uncountry? Then it's not a good thing. Is it simply self-love? That's a good thing, but one mustn't make a virtue of it or a profession. Yeah. And then, like, he does go on to say later in that same passage, insofar as I love life, I love the hills of the domain of Esther, which is where he's from. But that sort of love does not have a boundary line of hate. Yeah. I I do think that one is really great. I had the same point down (laughs) under patriotism, actually. And I I do think that that, you know, it really kind of gets to it. It's like, these are just completely arbitrary distinctions and what we really need to be like where where is the border on the on the land like look at it's not there it's something we've made up for our own reasons and it's good to sometimes think about whether or not those are still good reasons yeah to look at this through particularly the lens of that whole thing i was talking about with science fiction and analogies for what you're actually going through the culture mm-hmm. like she's writing in 1969 so it's you know cold war mm-hmm. we've got 20 years after 1984 was written yeah McCarthyism is a thing and then you start finding that she's talking about the voluntary farms yeah which are these work camp places mm-hmm. and of course there's a really nice one that's in the capital city where it looks like it's this great thing where people do go and help out to mm-hmm. do things and it's a lot of the same sort of like that secrecy that you don't know what the government's doing in other places a lot of the stuff about Russia and such Like um, Esterman mentions that he'd heard reports Mm -hmm. of these drugs being used on farms to keep people out of chemo and Mm -hmm. such, which is, of course, something that our own prisons do with treating prisoners with estrogen. Yeah, there was a big thing a few years ago that I I know there was an outcry to kind of stop the practice, but I'm not actually sure if it was stopped, where they were offering prisoners, like, essentially for them to be sterilized or have like temporary sterilization methods like that were long-term like IUDs and things Mm. to reduce their sentences. And it's very much this very eugenicist thing of we will reduce your sentence if we can be sure that you won't have kids in the next couple of years, which there's just some really disgusting classist and in a lot of case, cases, racist um, motives behind that, considering that so much of our criminal justice system is uh, biased in pursuing uh, sentencing on people of color and black people in particular. So, But again, you get this sort of, I got some other references to where there's talks about re- the refugees who are sneaking over our borders and like mm-hmm. how they're being treated. We get a nice reference on two, page 294 of Carhide First. Yeah. Being said, which is... Uh, it's very Ger- close to home. Germany first, America first. It's It all goes and around. Britain around. first. Britain first, yes, that's around as well. That's, uh, yeah, I think that's really what I've got to say about nationhood right now. Yeah, going back to sort of the more... The conversation about the ecumen and the strategy that they use to kind of bring in new worlds mm-hmm. and back to the whole, like, sending one guy part to, you know, be that first point of connection and point of contact for the approached world to learn about the society of worlds. 
I think it's really interesting that like at the end of the book, Genli I sort of expands on his understanding of why that's done because initially, like you see him explaining to like Estrovin, I think, or the king, somebody in Carhide, why it's just the one, why it's just him. He doesn't have an army at his back or anything, and it's like, oh, well, we don't want to intimidate you or like try and make you feel manipulated or defensive. It doesn't take a thousand men to open a door type of stuff. But later he said, you know, I thought it was for your sake that I came alone. So obviously alone, so vulnerable that I could in myself post no threat, change no balance, not an invasion, but a mere messenger boy. But there's more to it than that. Alone, I cannot change your world, but I can be changed by it. Alone, I must listen as well as speak. Alone, the relationship I finally make, if I make one, is not impersonal and not only political, it is individual, it is personal, it is both more and less than political. Not we and they, not I and it, but I and thou. Not political, not prag pragmatic, but mystical. In a certain sense, since the, the ecumen is not a body politic, but a body mystic, it considers beginnings to be extremely important. Beginnings and means. Its doctrine is, is just the reverse of the doctrine that the end justifies the means. So I thought that was really powerful, particularly the part about being changed by the new environment and being in a situation where you have to be humble. Going back to the conversation we had about cultural humility with Nightmare Before Christmas, you have to acknowledge that you don't know these people and they don't know you and you need to listen to them and what they need and how they see things so that you can be an effective envoy from this other community. Yeah. Like you can't be there imposing your views, imposing your ideas. If you're one person and you're doing that, you're powerless and they can just kill you. And he does say lots of the time the first envoy is just murdered. Like just killed. They, people think he's crazy. Locked up is insane. Lo yeah, locked up is insane or killed outright because people are threatened or whatever. And then the second envoy comes. And he does say that. And like and I think that's important. They're like one person's life is not worth the first impression basically like the first you don't get another one and it's important for you for the culture that you are trying to learn about and trying to welcome to be the one who is receptive and not the one that is being in you know feeling imposed or invaded on Does that makes sense yeah i thought that was neat yeah and i think it's also what it's talked about of it being like it's it's not governments, it's you and me. Yeah. It's people, it's mankind. It's mm -hmm. more and more of that, like, mm -hmm. we make a lot of distinctions that don't matter. Yeah, and it, it goes back, I know I've mentioned it before, as to why, like, Estrovin ends up being exiled and branded a traitor. And in the end, when Genli I goes and visits Estrovin's family, he says, Estrovin wasn't a traitor, he was loyal to the same thing I am he was loyal to mankind, like yeah. the greater interests of humanity that we all come together as, as family, as brothers, quote unquote, you know, that we all acknowledge our, what's common about us. You know, that idea again with the gender, again, with the different countries, there's, when it comes to human beings, we all have way more in common than we have that sets us apart. Yeah. But I think that's all I wanted to say about that. I can understand how she's definitely feeling this way in the wake of, Two old wars, the Cold War's going on, and the Berlin Wall is standing when she's writing this. Yeah. Like, it's like these are arbitrary walls yeah. that we put up as humans to convince ourselves that we're different from each other when we really ultimately aren't that different. Yeah. 
Okay, so now that we've hopped on about that for a while. Mm-hmm. I think uh, those are the two big topics. I think the other things we have are, yeah. are pretty small. I, I've got like a couple of small things, really. It's one thing split into two even smaller things. Um, okay. But I, it's uh, folktales and religion. Uh-huh. Um, so folktales I really want to talk about within... I don't know if folktales is the right word. Sort of folktale slash myth slash legend slash world history, but presented in an oral tradition, which is mentioned is what Carhide has. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come across kind of folktale. But that being used as a storytelling element, we've talked a lot about what the story says. Yeah. Um, but the folktales, I think, are really interesting in this because they're presented as these sorts of histories that at first just sort of seem to inform you about the world but then become apparent all of those stories are parallels for either things going on in the stories or things that have happened in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the best example of that is, um, I think it's like the second chapter Mm -hmm. is um, inside the world inside the blizzard or light inside the blizzard. Mm -hmm. And it's the story of two brothers that vow Kemmer to each other because in this world incest is legal as long as you don't have a child and then continue and as long as it's the same age if you if you have a child one child's okay right but you can't do anything more at that point you have to break yeah vowing kemab is being is effectively marriage but has no legal standing it's more of like a a vow of you know fidelity Yeah. yeah um but it's a story of two brothers that do that and then continue on past the point when it's no longer legal mm-hmm. um, and get sort of cast out mm-hmm. because of it and one of them kills himself and the other one feels betrayed by that mm-hmm. and flees into the mountains and the snow and everyone sort of assumes that they've died mm-hmm. and when they're up there they get to this sort of area inside the blizzard where they have a conversation with their dead Kemmering partner mm-hmm. and is like, effectively, you left me. What mm-hmm. the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um, and then comes back down, assumes a new name and lives in a separate place mm-hmm. and sort of goes on from there. And everyone's like, well, they must be dead because they went up on the ice for nine days or something. So. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting story that tells you a lot about the culture, uh, whether it being incest or how suicide is viewed. And because exile. And exile. Um, because suicide is viewed as pretty much the worst thing you can do in this society. Mm-hmm. As it's the, like, uh, I think they say it's an abdication of opportunity and forgiveness, or the opportunity for forgiveness. But then you can put together, while that story is supposed to have taken place 200 years before the report is given by Jen Lai, um, it's clearly what is meant to have happened to Estevan. Mm-hmm. You can just put together the way that Estevan talks about his dead brother and stuff, and the fact that he refers to himself as Estevan the traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all this notion of betrayal, and that sort of story that par- like that seems to just tell you about the world is actually also functions to explain to you what this what has happened in this character's past without ever having to have Estevan go, well, Mr. I, mm-hmm. this is my sordid past that I wouldn't ever tell anyone about. That I've lived in exile over for 20 years. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's a really nice storytelling device for that aspect. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of others. The other part that, that's interesting there is, um, and this will lead a little bit to religion, I think. So I won't say too much in case you want to add something here. But that there's sort of the facts behind the legends. Mm-hmm. When um, 
they're talking about going up on the ice at the end and the fact that the like effectively most of the hemisphere is ice that reflects the sun so if there's a big calm up there you don't really get storms mm-hmm. um so you fight your way through a storm and you get to this peaceful place and it's the same calm inside the blizzard that turns up in that legend earlier mm-hmm. um and it's references like oh well that's where that legend comes from sort of notion yeah i mean i do think it's an interesting storytelling device it's a clever way of telling you a lot about the culture and giving you the tools to infer more about people's backstories than could be elegantly included in the story. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't, as you say, be really out of character for Estrovan to disclose his history with his brother and stuff. And it's confirmed. You can kind of read between the lines and it's confirmed at the end when Jenny I meets Estrovan's child. Yeah. And, you know, his father, Estrovan's father, says this is my son's child, like both of this child of both his sons. So you do know that that's what happened, but it would have been weird and like there's not really another good way to do that. So I do think it was an effective storytelling device. Yeah, there's a similar thing with sort of like just sort of looking at some of the larger themes. I think is really what it's there for is the the two people from different cultures coming together in one of the legends mm-hmm. where it's the uh, person from Esther and the person from Stock. Yeah, the feuding. That, like, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet story. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them dies, but then the other one is gives birth to a child later, and then that child ends up ruling and ending the feud. Yeah. It is sort of like Romeo and Juliet, but somewhat nicer, because they don't both die. One of them Yeah. Yeah, has a baby, and, uh, yeah, as you say, baby. Ends up ending the feud and is is called Estrovan the traitor because he ended the feud and so his people are like mad that he ended the feud. Yeah. Because it's like, you know You embraced our enemies. Yeah, you embraced our enemies and that like kind of puts us in a I guess like a lower spot or whatever. It's like, you know, you lost face because you basically, I guess, flinched first sort of thing. But it's like whatever, this isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and we should clarify, I think, with the Estra stuff, like the the naming in there. Uh, Estravan's name is not Estravan. That clearly means... It's like a family oh. name or whatever. Well, I think Estravan is just a lord of Estra. Yeah. Because he's half Therum. Yeah. Irvan, I- it's I- like hearth. Irem. Yeah, half, half Therum, Irem, Estravan, I think, which means... Yeah. I think half Therum of Estra. Yeah. Well, Estravan is his land name, he said. Right. So, like, everyone has the name that's basically who you are in your community. So for him, that's Lord of Esther, so it's Estravan. But for other people, it would presumably be, like, Esther something else um, that denoted, I guess, their role in that community. And it's, it's I guess, like, your last name, sort of. like. Yeah. You know, it's if I were to introduce myself and only interact with people as Ms. Green and like, you'd know that, oh, well, that's clearly someone from the Green family. There are theoretically lots of Ms. Greens, like, um, but his, like, it's like your first name is like a private thing that's only used with friends and like people who know you well. Um, Like a big name. Yeah. Which is, it's just an interesting, like, cultural naming convention. So. Anything you want to say about folktales or religion? Um, not particularly. I did think it was kind of neat. In a couple places, they talk about the myths, and Genly I says, oh, that myth is, you know, sounds like it's 
evolved from our like cosmological understandings of the universe. Yeah. Um, like this, this myth explains certain scientific and cosmological principles that the founders of of the humans in, on this planet, uh, you know, the first people who were settled here from the Hain, whatever, would have known this stuff, and it's kind of been passed on through these myths and legends, and that's interesting because people pick apart myths like that. You know? Yeah. And that it's interesting that view of sort of religion and science meeting together, mm-hmm. um, because there's also like Esteban has like sort of a, a tips his hand having sort of an odd view of religion because he mentions that if he was to rewrite the Yomesh canon, mm-hmm. then he like I think he's talking he's talking about being up on the ice, mm-hmm. and he's saying that like if he was to rewrite the Yomesh canon, then he would put then he would send those guilty of theft here. Mm. Which is a somewhat irreverent comment because he's not Yomesh. There, mm-hmm. there are two major religions that we're exposed to over the course of the book. There's the Handarada, which have a sort of a Zen outlook and are very much about how meaningless a lot of things are and how you know how useless it is to know the answer to the wrong question and you know searching nothing for answers and you know just sort of trying to peel back the experience of the world, I guess. And then the Yomesh who are like all focused on experiencing everything at once or like knowledge of everything at once is like the thing that their prophet was able to do. And so their, their writings talk about all these different worlds that people who commit different sins are consigned to. And there's the, the thief's hell, which is like a, a, barren hot desert yeah so yeah yeah there's another interesting like sort of parallel to it where um in fairly early on in the book they're talking about god and religion and they're saying that if there was proof either way of whether god existed then there would be no religion yeah like it wouldn't be a matter of faith or belief like it would just be a weird fact yeah and then like there's an odd parallel with it where they're talking about the ship Mm -hmm. and there's this sort of question of is it really there and what Mm -hmm. does it mean it's like well bring down the ship and we'll know you're not crazy. Mm-hmm. But if we tell people you're going to bring down the ship and then you don't bring it down, then we look crazy. And mm-hmm. really, generally, I is asking them to have, have, faith. have some faith yeah. and this will happen. And trust him. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, no, give us proof. Mm-hmm. So there's that interesting aspect there. Yeah. I'm not really sure what it says about Le Guin's view on religion. but <laughs> Okay, so I think that, that takes us to my page of miscellaneous commentary. Well, I had a couple of other brief topics, okay. so do those first, please. Yes, please. Okay, so I had a couple of notes, um, things mainly that the relationship between hardship generally everywhere on the planet Gethin and, like, hospitality also everywhere on the planet Gethin had to each other. So Gethin, as we mentioned before, or winter, is this borderline habitable planet that's just really deep tundra all the time like taiga in some areas but like really really cold always and like the people have evolved to have like subcutaneous fat layers like seals and things to be able to cope with the conditions and they also seem pretty universally to have these deeply ingrained ideas of hospitality there's like the the strict rule is you have to offer offer hospitality to a stranger for at least three days. Most people will happily host you and take care of you for longer than that. 
And so you can get from one place to another and like survive okay just going from new place to new place if you need to. And one of the things that that really reminded me of is one, this like the Jewish principle of loving the stranger, like the Jewish value of loving the stranger, because for about a year, I was interning with a Jewish organization as part of my MSW program. And this came up a few times with particular holidays, especially like there are traditions around always having uh, like being ready to welcome the stranger. And it's a central idea that you are supposed to do. And then also from my experience growing up in Southern California and being aware that in some parts of like more desert areas and like Arizona and things, there are laws surrounding water that kind of reflect this idea that you have to provide water to someone if they ask for it. And it, these kinds of ideas, I think, go back to this relationship of having these ideas of hospitality and what you owe to another human being when you are in a community or an environment that is very harsh and has a lot of hardships just inherent in its survival. Um, so I thought that was really beautiful and also really interesting and I think cuts right through again to that. I think really the huge theme of recognizing the humanity in each other and honoring that with our actions and what we owe to one another. Hmm. Did you have any comments? Does that spark any thoughts in you? Oh, I think that's just a good point. I think that you developed that much more than I possibly could. Okay. And the other thing I thought that was neat and stood out was the discussion of time a couple of times. Hmm, yeah. So on Gethin, time is, is measured always in relation to the present. So each new year is year one. And all previous history is referred to by like counting backwards, like however many years ago or in the reign of this king, you know, the third year of that king or whatever. So it's all time stamped in relation to other events or backwards from the present. Yeah. And it's discussed that because it's always year one, there's more focus on the present and people are less rushed and like, are really just more aware of what's going on, attend more to the present, which I thought was interesting. Well, I thought the really nice example for that was um, when he's trying to get out of Carhide and he's on, um, like, in a convoy of vehicles and they all go about 25 miles an hour and it's because just no one's in that much of a rush. And he's like, the question, why don't these go faster? is as logical to them as it would be to us, someone on Earth, why doesn't your why is your car going so fast? Like, why doesn't it go slower? It's like, mm -hmm. because I need to go fast. I don't need to. This is fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, it definitely seems to affect people's perspective. And I do also kind of wonder if that, like, idea of not moving too quickly maybe has some of its roots in, like, the hardship in, like, the winters. Like, yeah. if you're, like, sprinting, you're wasting a lot of calories. You know, like you're expending a lot of energy. It's more efficient for like traveling a long distance to move slowly and surely. And so like from an evolutionary perspective, I wonder if that's part of how that kind of comes by of like when you rush and you don't take the time to, if you're not moving at a pace where you can be constantly eating, which is another thing people are always doing. People like eat like five or six times a day. Yeah. Because again, it's really cold. Like, and I, when I say really cold, I mean like negative 30 degrees, like all the time. Uh, I think like warm is like freezing, you know, for them. So if you're running, you can't be stuffing your face, you know, you're burning a lot of calories. You're not putting them back in. 
Challenge accepted. If you're, but if you're plotting sort of at a measured pace, you can also be grabbing handfuls of calorie-rich foods and also be carrying children or whatever you need to be doing for the survival yeah. on the trip. So I wonder if that's kind of mixed in that too. But it does seem to be a global perspective linked to like time. Like there is no rush. Yeah, I do want to talk about it. It's interesting slash depressing mm-hmm. because again, this was written in 1969, mm-hmm. um, and there's references in here. Le Guin talks about the price that was paid on terror for industrialization, mm-hmm. um, and that being sort of a conscious thought. And at the same time, she's also well at a different point in the book. She talks about when they're up on the ice and there's these volcanoes erupting Mm -hmm. and she's talking about how the ice is moving and how there are areas that aren't covered or are covered by ice now and talking about climate change and CO2 caught in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And there's this very much awareness of the greenhouse effect and climate change. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit sad to go 50 years later that we're still (sighs) apparently debating this. Yeah. I I don't know what. Yeah. Um, That was just a small note. Yeah. While we're talking about small notes, I had a couple of quotes I pulled out. Well, one was the, we haven't talked about it much, but there are like some interesting psychic powers in the book. Yeah. Um, so generally I knows how to mind speak, which is essentially telepathic communication, but he can really only do it with other people who know how to do it. Um, and so it's not really very useful for him on Geffen, but it's a thing that he can do. And he says it's something humans learned from a particular group of humans on another planet. And on this planet, on Geffen, they have people particularly like mystics in the Honda religion who can do a thing called foretelling, which is answering a question truly telling, you know, like a question about the future. Um, and there's a great quote from one of the Honda that's we perfected and practice foretelling to exhibit the perfect uselessness of knowing the answer to the wrong question. Cause again, they have this very Zen perspective and, it's incredibly dangerous for them to do this practice. Like they end up like fasting for long periods and it's apparently pretty mental, mentally um, trying for them. And like, sometimes they die in the pursuit of these answers. So it's, I think it really an interesting commentary on like, what do you actually need to know? And what is actually the value of any foreknowledge of anything? Like, how much good does it do you? And going back to what you were talking about with myths, one of the segments is a myth of a man who asks when he's going to die and is told the day of the week or the day of yep. the month. And it's basically, it's like the Ides of March type of thing where he's basically told, like, oh, you'll die on, like, the 19th or something. He's like, but of what month? Of what year? Like, yep. and just goes completely crazy and ruins his life and ends up costing him the life of his partner because he asked the wrong question. So I just thought that was interesting. Did you have any comments on that quote? Or that whole phenomenon? That whole image, the, like, oh, there's, a, uh, there's a lot of interesting imagery there, but I don't think I have anything useful to say about it. It's like, it's kind of cool. Yeah. I did want to mention with the mind speak stuff, I thought it was entertaining. Um, there's just like a little footnote. Oh, yeah. When, he, <laughs> when he's explaining um, how mind speak works and that you can't lie, that like, when it was originally discovered, like, businessmen pushed against it being allowed for forever because they were like, like, we need to be able to lie. (laughs) Yeah. Can't have truth serum on hand. With her sort of advocating change and, like, how to get change sort of thing, I thought that was an interesting point when uh, 
She's talking about all roads lead to missionary, which is a location. Mm-hmm. It's that all roads lead to Rome thing. Yeah. Um, and it's the, uh, the quote is, they say here, all roads lead to missionary. To be sure, if you turn your back on missionary and walk away from it, you are still on the ro- missionary road. To oppose vulgarity is inevitably to be vulgar. You must go somewhere else. You must have another goal. Then you walk a different road. And it's just that sort of, if you want to try and change something, you have to do something completely different. You can't be working in those same channels. The master's, the tool, the master's tools can't disassemble the master's house. I'm, I'm, that might be the wrong quote, but. I don't know that quote. Oh, it's essentially like, you can't change the system from within. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, there's, I'm going to look up the specific quote. Editing this is not going to be fun, I'm sorry. I know. But on the bright side, I think that there is like an hour that you can cut out of it. Mostly just of us looking up Um books. It's a book by Audre Lorde. The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Mm. Um, and, yeah, uh, okay, it, that makes she's sense. She's a black lesbian mother warrior poet. Essays on the power of women, poetry, and anger. Mm. But, yeah. I feel like this this sort of miscellaneous commentary thing might be replacing the fun facts for me. Mm. I think the last thing I wanted to say uh, on just random things was um, I really appreciate sort of the depth of world building in places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really shown well with the different names for types of snow. Yeah. Like, it's such a crucial thing that, like, they have, like, 26 words for different types of snow at different temperatures, which are I thought used. it was, like, 90 or something. It oh, was, ma- maybe, maybe. I'm it wrong. was a lot. Like, it was, like, 90-some-odd for snow and, like, even more for different kinds of ice. And, and there are points where, yeah. like, they're being used and eyes adding, like, footnotes of being mm-hmm. like, this means it's this kind of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, and equally, like, just when they're talking about the ice, like, the goblin mm-hmm. ice, it's very personified. It has hands and arms and fingers and tongues. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the, uh, when they get off of it, it's the goblin ice had spewed us out of its mouth. Yeah. Um, like, it's such a crucial part of their world that that's just how the language forms around it. And has such a visceral impact on them physically. Yeah. Um, equally, just like sort of some of the descriptions that come up with like Estevan's description of human nature and like the abilities of various people being viewed as alien. Mm-hmm. It's just very true to creating an entirely different world. And like there's very little animals, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that you see in a lot of created worlds. I think it's something people forget. But it's explicitly called out. But it's in explicitly here, yeah. called out because they talk about the fact that like they don't hunt because there's so few animals that would be huntable. Yeah. And there's no word for flying on this planet because there's no birds. Mm-hmm. And thus they don't have hover cars because who would have ever thought to fly? That would mm-hmm. clearly be insane. Yeah. And glide down so I think like their their version of angels glide down from heaven instead mm-hmm. of flying. Anyway, that's that's the end of my list of random thoughts that I would really just think from, like, that's cool. That's yeah. a Guin's such a good writer. Yes, very much so. And in that same vein, there I have just a couple more just random quotes that I liked. Um, the only thing that makes life possible is permanent, intolerable uncertainty, not knowing what comes next. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. And then the other one, which really just spoke to me as a person. When action grows unprofitable, gather information. When information grows unprofitable, sleep. And, I mean, that's just how I live my life and very much who I am as a person. So I just felt very, I don't know, is seeing the right word? This was written years before, decades before I was born, but still. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, just mood? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what else the Lip Room would have made if you've seen the Maybe. Anyway. Okay. I think that we've talked about a lot of stuff in here, and I think yes. some of those have been fairly big questions already. Yeah. So when it comes down to a big question for this, it's going to be a little bit different just because so much of the book is big questions. Um, I have a slightly strange one for you. Okay. So I'm drawing on, actually, Le Guin's essay for the big question here. Okay. Which I have, of course, got the right page pulled up in front of me already. And I'm not going to keep just talking until I find the right part of it. Just keep on wording. <laughs> um, da, 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 da. Here we go. Okay. I mean, um, ah, yes, I am now prepared to... <laughs> I was always prepared. What are you talking about? So, really, the question's about the original part of the essay, but I'm going to read the correction that she wrote to herself as well, mm-hmm. just to be complete. So, in her original essay, she had been kind of pushing against a lot of the feminist criticism of her work at the time, and she said... Wait, feminist criticism as in criticism from feminists, or criticism about it being a feminist work? She was pushing against the notion of it being a feminist work. Okay. In fact, like, she sort of... the. But just before this, she's talking about it and reference, calls it a feminist work with quotes around feminist, and then has later added the note, strike the quotation marks, please. So she said, The fact is that the real subject of the book is not feminism or sex or gender or anything of the sort. As far as I can see, it is a book about betrayal and fidelity. That is why one of its two dominant sets of symbols is an extended metaphor of winter, of ice, snow, cold, the Winter Journey. So my question is about that. I'm just going to quickly put in what she said later because I think it's important. So she said that this is overstated. I was feeling defensive and resentful that critics of the book insisted upon talking only about its gender problems as if it were an essay, not a novel. The fact is that the real subject of the book is... This is, a, this is bluster. I had opened a can of worms and was trying hard to shut it. The fact is, however, that there are other aspects to the book which are involved with its sex, gender aspects quite inextricably. My big question here is, was 1976 Le Guin right at all about the book being about betrayal and fidelity and that being a major theme? And if so, what does it say about it and who is owed fidelity? I mean, she herself says that she was blustering when she's making that, like, sweeping statement. I don't think it's about one thing, but if it is I think the the through line we found isn't betrayal and fidelity. It's the commonality of human experience and what we owe to each other as people. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting because, I mean, she says it's bluster to say that that's what the whole thing is about, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would argue that a large part of the, like, with the, you, you see, we, we can screen, like you're saying it's about what we owe to each other, but I, I would say it's about sort of that idea of these of two things being the same, mm-hmm. which with betrayal and fidelity is interesting, but also the phrase what we owe to each other mm-hmm. is tied up a lot with betrayal and fidelity because betrayal is not giving someone what they're owed, I would argue. Well, no, betrayal is going back on expectations. Right, so someone right. expected to be owed that thing. Well, no, it's like if if you betray somebody, you've made an agreement, and you don't follow through on the agreement. When I say what we owe to each other, I'm not talking about in that kind of a transactional way. I'm talking about recognizing each other's 
like the, the dignity and the worth of the person. Yeah. And that as human beings, we should see each other as human beings first and recognize what we have in common first instead of looking for ways to create arbitrary distinctions that give us an excuse not to see each other as human and not to extend the courtesy and the dignity and the respect that we know we should accord another human being. Okay. Well, I mean, if we talk about some of the occurrences of sort of betrayal or perceived betrayal in the book, mm-hmm. I mean, there's quite a few. So sure. I don't know if we can draw any patterns from those. So, I mean, from the beginning, generally I feel that Estevan has betrayed him by ceasing to support him with the king. Right. And that that seems to be a misunderstanding. You know, Estevan's trying to explain, oh, yeah, I kind of had to stop promoting your cause because I realized sort of which way the political winds were blowing. was It was not a good time. But he kind of tells... Jemiai about this kind of too little too late and is really coy about it for Shifgrithor reasons. So because Jemiai doesn't have the social tools to understand what Estran's trying to say, all he hears is, yeah, you know how I've said I've been promoting your cause this whole time. I haven't been doing that lately and things are about to kind of go bad for us and you should probably get out of this country. Yeah. And he's just like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> There's a few people who, like, turn eye over to, like, like, there's the people in Oregon who, like, sort of sell him out. Yeah. Which I'm not sure is really a betrayal, because I'm not sure that there was a reliable trust between them. Yeah. That one's um, weird. There's the stuff with Estevan and his sibling, and the sort of, like, legend around that, mm-hmm. and that sort of, like, betrayal of, like you left me sort of thing. Yeah. And you get something a little bit similar with Estraven's death at the end with I. And also with Estraven and the the Honderada, his former Cameron partner, because, um, so, like, if you're constructing Estraven's relationships, he first had the relationship with his brother, and his brother committed suicide, which Estraven views as a betrayal through that culture, through the cultural, through the culture. But then... Estevan vows Cameron to someone else, which is also not something that's done. Like, you can only vow Cameron once, but because he never openly vowed Cameron to his brother, I guess he sort of did. Well, him. I think that because he went up into the hills and mm-hmm. became an exile, like, it's mm-hmm. sort of not known. Yeah. So anyway, he then ends up vowing Cameron to this other person, and they have several kids, but then that person leaves Estevan to essentially become a monk. Yeah. You know, to become one of the mystics who does, like, the foretelling and stuff among the Honorata, which I guess you can't do while being in a relationship. And so Estrovin views that as a betrayal as well. So he's sort of been left twice in these ways that can't be undone. Yeah. And then, as I said, he leaves I in sort of a similar way at the end. It's really unclear. Like, I mean, he seems to sort of commit suicide by law enforcement. By border yeah. patrol, and Estrovin kind of says something indicating that, and because the taboo on suicide is so strong in this community, you mean I said it? Yeah. Who did I say? Estrovin. I'm sorry. Yeah. Got Angelini makes a comment that implies this, and the person he's talking to, which I think is the doctor, is like, "Are you saying you committed suicide?" It's like, unless you have proof, you shouldn't say that kind of thing. Like, you're basically going to completely tarnish his memory 
for everybody, like, yeah. you know, dishonor his memory. So, yeah. So there's that sort of group of betrayals there, which are some interesting ones within the culture. Yeah. I don't know that they're necessarily what the book is about. Yeah. And then there's sort of the fidelity to... Like, sort of, who who do you owe fidelity to as far as, like, yeah. countries or mankind or the... So that, that that's sort of an interesting question. I think we've talked about a decent amount with, yeah. like, just... you Are you betraying your country if it's for the greater of mankind? Yeah, like, what is the hierarchy of loyalty, I guess? I think... And I, I think that that is probably a better through line or, like, you know, a, more of a central idea in the books than betrayal just on its own yeah because that idea does come up a lot even back to what we were talking about before about like just what do we owe to each other as humans and like the dignity of man and all of that so you know that kind of fits into this hierarchy of loyalty where you see that you know estrogen's brother leaves him because of the taboo and like what he owes to the community presumably he feels he can't make up for that Estrovin's other partner leaves because of his he feels he has a greater loyalty to the community as a mystic and like that's his higher calling to his people and that's a higher calling than to his partner and then you have Estrovin who the king brands a traitor and views as a traitor because he's serving interests beyond the borders of the kingdom he's serving the interests of humanity and Gethin humans all around the globe above Carhide specifically and Genli I on his own he is there as a representative of like this what's kind of painted in the in the book as like the highest loyalty that you should consider which is the loyalty to the furthering of mankind yeah and I think you referenced it earlier but I think it's the conversation with the king at the end talking about Estravan where it's like we serve the same Agent and his assumption with like we serve the same thing is oh like he's an agent of the ecumen yeah like, no no it's not the ecumen it's it's people it's everyone yeah it's all of us like it's the greater interest of humanity so I, I think we we agree that like there's some themes of it in there but it was mostly just the buster that Le Guin calls it out as yeah so um that's the big question mm-hmm. but the bigger question is which is more important good food. Or good infrastructure. Because Genli I like goes from Carhide to Orgarain and is talking about how, oh, Orgarain is so much better in every way except the food sucks. And also their clothes are boring. And he goes back to Carhide and is like, ah, flavors. Hmm. Define infrastructure more for me. Well, what do you mean by infrastructure in this case? Because I mean like if you're talking about a health standards agency for the food network, then uh, maybe infrastructure is probably better than, than the flavor. Mmm, great flavor. What is it? Cockroaches and rats. Great. Yeah. Well, what are the things that are actually better about... Oh, what's better about Ogre Rain, I think, is that everyone starts off equal. That was a thing we didn't really talk about. It's oh, yeah. like, people don't raise their own kids after, like, a year. Everyone's, like, raised in these, like, communal environments. And no one, when you die, your money is just divided up equally by the state, basically. So, like, you can't take it with you. So people who do kind of make it in life are super generous with their wealth because they know they can't do anything else with it. It is really Um, weird there where, like, 
it is clearly set up as an analogy for communism. Mm-hmm. And you have like the voluntary farms and the Which work labor camps. Yeah. But like a lot of the sort of policies are portrayed in a good light, I think. Yeah, like, like the, the actual mobility. Yeah. It's that the concepts here are good. The like corruption and like the killing people, less so. And the secret <laughs> police, really, that whole thing is bad. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's getting more serious than most of our bigger questions. So, I guess the what I'm asking is which is more important? An actual opportunity for upward mobility or good food? Like, if you can only have one. Well, right now I only have good burgers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say that the upward mobility would be nice. Yeah. But if what you're really asking is, would I rather live in a place with good food or a place with secret police? That's true. I think the good food might win out. Yeah. If it was the ideal of what Oregon or Oregon should be, then I'd probably go for the infrastructure. Sure. I'd love to cook that food. What about you? I mean, you make a good point about, like, I don't know, when I had to think about more about, well, what does Ogarain really have to offer to balance out the good food and its actual mobility and the lack of income inequality? Like, there's no there's no inequality there, really. Like, not the way we have it here. They have, they have um, presumably, I think they have looser codes and, like, the ability, like, more technology with things like the, um, using the hormones to select your, yeah. which way you go during chemo. They're more socially progressive in a lot of ways. They don't think it's a big deal to postpone chemo, bring it on at the time you want, to go one way or the other, whatever. Like, they don't really care as much. I mean, to try and be there all the time is weird, but otherwise, whatever. So I think that what, what I would definitely come down on is I would, I would go with the good food if there was secret police. If you can get mm-hmm. rid of the secret police and the voluntary farms and things, I'd mm-hmm. go with the infrastructure. And the, the greater social liberty. Yeah. yeah. But the, like, being taken away in the middle of the night, it's deal breaker for me. That's fair. That's fair. I, I think I, I would definitely have to agree. Like, maybe just, like, vacation in Ogre or vacation in Carhide and, like, occasionally. Or hire someone from there who knows how to cook. I feel like that's the move. Yeah. I mean, there might be some, like, issues with ingredients. But... Yeah. So, as I mentioned earlier, most of my fun facts were really just fun things I found in the text that I've already said, so I don't really have anything in that vein, but I understand okay. you have a couple? Yes, I do have a couple. So most of these, in fact, all of these come from an interview that Ursula Le Guin did with the Paris Review, which okay. I was only able to read up to a point because then it was a paywall. <laughs> but there's a lot of cool facts in there up until that point. Our Patreon and... can be found. Okay. And... Yeah, you can go ahead and link it in the description because I think it's neat. So... And if there's anything cool after the paywall, you let us know. Yeah, don't, no, seriously. Or, yeah, definitely let us know. So one of the things I thought was neat about it is that apparently Ursula Le Guin's father was a prominent anthropologist and her mother was a biographer. That makes a lot of sense. And they often had Native American visitors and family friends who she credits as um, giving her, quote, the gift of the experience of the other that she thinks a lot of people don't get growing up. Um, I think this probably contributed a lot to the ethnographic style of her writing, uh, which I definitely noticed because that's something that I was exposed to as an anthropology minor. We read ethnographic works like Guests of the Shake. And if you're not familiar with ethnography, it's when an anthropologist goes into a culture and just sort of is immersed in the culture and takes notes as they sort of learn about the experience in a very similar way to Jen Lee where they're they're by themselves, they're trying to not interfere with anything, but just to observe and absorb and, you know, understand. 
So another fun fact from, from that interview is that she did a translation slash version of the Tao Te Ching. I did actually see that when I was looking up, trying to find the essay. I saw that there was one and I was like, what? Yeah. So she did this because Taoism helped her to figure out how to, how to look at life and how to lead it as an adolescent. And I definitely see reflections of Taoism in some of the portrayal of like the Honda and like their mystical perspective has a lot in common with Taoism. Because again, I also, I took a lot of fascinating classes as an undergrad and took a lot of religion, including a, mystic, a meditation and mysticism course and sacred texts and things like that. So um, I definitely recognize some of those influences there. Also, her first publications, while we're talking about writing that she's done that's not novels, um, her first publications were poetry, and her father helped her send them out and uh, found the subculture of poetry publishing very interesting. Hmm. So that was kind of neat. Um, and she also <laughs> notes in that interview that her first novel is unpublished and, quote, may a curse fall upon any academic who digs it out and publishes it, which I thought you'd find particularly interesting as we have had lots of conversations outside of this podcast about how messed up it is when people dig out the unpublished works of authors who are respected yeah. um, as a shameless, shameless uh, exploitative cash grab. Yeah. Or even if it's just not a shameless thing, like, I mean, there's some stuff from, like, Tolkien and stuff that people are working through and doing their notes. There's some stuff from Bram Stoker. It's like their descendants and such. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, but you don't know that they wanted that out there, like, and you're not just making a brand new work in their world, which would be one thing. Yeah. But you're putting their name on it, and mm-hmm. I'm very, very aware that I have stuff on my laptop that I wrote 12 years ago, and if it ever sees the light of day, then I will be very unhappy. It is still on my computer for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope that something on my computer one day does see the light of day, but never mind. Uh, but with your consent and full cooperation yes. participation. Yes, I thought those were all very interesting things that jumped out at me from the part of that interview I was able to read. Cool. I realized that I didn't mention the essay that I've been drawing on the Is Gender Necessary Redux. Um, If you're interested in reading that, it does not seem to be available online, but it is included in a book of essays by her called Dancing at the Edge of the World, Thoughts on Words, Women, Places. You can apparently also find it on Kindle. I'm not sure what we have that allowed me to download it for free, but I pressed download sample and it gave me the whole book. So if you're interested, you could try that. And I will probably post a couple of the quotes from it on our social media page. Okay. You should probably put a link to the book in the description. Yes, we'll, we'll do that as well. Okay. Did we have anything else to add, say, do? No. Is this point where we do late thoughts from previous episodes? Feedback? No feedback. Please give us feedback. Follow up? No. Late thoughts, yeah. Did you have any late thoughts from previous episodes? No. Okay. Well, awesome. Okay. Next week, we will be entering full seasonal phase, um, and you can listen to two pagans discuss Dickens' A Christmas Carol and The Muppet Christmas Carol. So we have that to look forward to. And then on December 25th, we'll be putting out an episode on How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And then our next episode will probably be on New Year's Day, but we haven't decided what it's going to be yet. So stay tuned for news on that. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings. And you can find us on Twitter at UnramblingsPod. And you can email us any thoughts, questions, musings, short stories, poetry um, at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. 
we would love to hear feedback. We know that there are people out there listening, um, but we are only hearing back from a few of them. People telling us what we're doing wrong or maybe even what we're doing right would be cool. And if you're listening on a platform that allows it, please do try and rate and review us because it helps other people find the show. Tell all your friends about it. And with that, I'll stop the shameless plugging and we'll call it a day. Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We'll see you next week. We won't see them. What are you talking about? That's not how this works. You just want them to feel seen. <laughs>